Uh, welcome to Element. If you are brand new, uh, the decorations are not because we're trying to be... I gotta, I'm going to say this every week now until we move to into Christmas. But uh, the decorations are not because we're like a Persian church. It's because we're moving to the next phase in Genesis, which is about relationship. And so we did these decorations to kind of be like a, like a Persian Middle Eastern tent kind of feel. So you feel like you're in a tent relationship coming together, husbands and wives, fathers and sons. Okay, whatever. All right. So uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called Version. Click on Live in that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get all the, the notes and stuff so you don't have to actually get up and run over to a table and grab one. So uh, I'm going to invite you guys to something. Uh, on the 4th of July, actually a couple of years ago, this is how this all worked out. I call it the, the fireworks extravaganza. A couple years ago, I was, I don't know how I ended up at Britt Stanley's house on the 4th of July. Uh, but weird things happen when I end up at Britt Stanley's house on the 4th of July. And, and I'm there for his, his fireworks little show thing that he does. And this is what he does. So he'll grab a firework, and he'll be like, oh, this is the Purple Rain. The Purple Rain emits sparks of flowers and shites. And he walks over and he puts it down and talks the commentary the whole time, lights the thing, and goes, you know, does what it does. And then he picks it up when it's done. He's all, so that was the Purple Rain. And it does, and he goes and he puts it away. And I am just cracking up the entire time because it's funny. <laughs> and so every, I mean, every year I'm like, I mean, I mind people, you should all come to the Brit Stanley Fireworks Extravaganza. So you are all invited. If you have nothing to do on the 4th of July, I'm inviting all of you to Brit's house. He knows it's okay, all right? So I'm inviting you all to Britt's house. If you, if you don't have anything to do, cool. If you do, then do whatever you're going to do. But it's 949 East Tunnel. Uh, they encourage you to bring your own fireworks and light those off as well. I'm sure if he runs out and you want to give him more to comment about, I'm sure he will. It'll be lots of fun. And I'm assuming it's right around dusk time. I don't know what time that is in the summer, like 10 p.m. I don't know. It gets dark so late. Holy cow. It's like, yeah. Anyway, so, so there you go, 4th of July. Uh, I got two things before we go. First one is this. We work with a group at, in Thailand called the Tamar Center. And what they do is help get girls out of prostitution in Thailand. And they do this various ways uh, by teaching them different skills that they can, they can do so they can actually earn money not having to sell themselves. And uh, one of the things that they do is they make uh, greeting cards and journals. And if you need some cards or some journals, we have some of those in the back. And after service, Lisa's going to be back there. She's going to be selling them. And if you need to pick some up, grab some of those. All the money from that goes to support these girls coming out of prostitution in Thailand. So if you need to pick something like that up, it'll be in the back. And then my last thing is I had lunch with the guy this week, and he was asking me the status of our building, where we're at. Uh, and again, we're still in the same spot where we don't know really what's going on at all. And so he said, is there some things that we could be praying for? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, you know, th- this service is pretty full. Our second service, literally wall to wall. My friend Dan comes half time to stand in the hallway with his wife because there are no seats. And so we've, we've kind of outgrown this building. Our, our children's, all the rooms are impacted. They're all safe if you have kids in there, by the way. It's very safe. <laughs> Uh, but they're, they're pretty impacted, and so we're, we need to look for a place to kind of move into. At this point, if you want to pray for things, first off, we'd like for about 20,000 square feet or more. Uh, 
All right, so if you have a buddy that has like a 20,000 square foot place they want to give us, awesome. But, you know, start praying for something like that. Uh, secondly is we want a, a place that, that's closer to, you know, part of a, of a city hub, like right here. This is actually the sixth most travel, heavily trafficked intersection in our city is right here. It's a great place for a church to be. Uh, we really don't want to be in a place that's on the outskirts of town somewhere because part of our mission and vision for Element is for all of you to always understand that we are in the midst of a community. The worst thing to do is like end up somewhere out away from everybody so you feel like, oh, I do church over here and my life is over here. No, everything in your life is about worship of God. Everything. Church, home life. And so we don't want to be so far out there. We want to be in the middle of everything. So you can be praying for 20,000 square feet in the middle of everything. That's what we want. Okay, I know it's not a tall order, but yeah, I'll even take 40 or 50,000 square feet. You know, I'm, I'm not picky, but I'll take it. Uh, and then this person also asked me, too, they said, well, if we want to give to something like that, can we give to a building fund? And we don't have one yet, but you know what? If you want to give over your normal giving and write a check that says building fund, uh, we can start a fund like that and just start keeping that. We, we have great financial accountability. If you're a member, you can see all of those things. And we're just looking and waiting for what God's going to call us to do. I kind of feel a little bit like Abraham, like we've been studying, where God's like going to end up one day, go, where, I'll show you. When, you know, <laughs> and so you know, is it Sisquak or is it San Ru? Where is it going to be, God? And, and we're going to go when he says to go, but we're just waiting for that. And we want to be good stewards in the process. So that's where we're at. Why don't you stand with me reading God's word? This is Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand what it truly means to live peaceably that the peace that we have in our lives because you have restored relationship with us would make great sense in how we then live out our lives missionally in front of everyone else around us and that the peace that we display to them would first come from the peace that we have with you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so if you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis uh, chapter 13. Uh, We have been studying Genesis, the story that starts all but doesn't end all stories. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is about God creating everything, making everything good. Uh, Genesis 3, we, we call this the fall. Man comes in and messes it all up, but God extends his hand of covenant and relationship again to mankind. You get Genesis 4, 5, and 6, sin just explodes upon the earth. Genesis 6, God comes to this guy named Noah, says build a boat. This is representation, a representative that God is offering salvation. Nobody takes him up on it, and Noah hops in this boat, and God takes care of the sin problem on the earth. After he gets out of the, out of the boat in Genesis 9, God then re-extends covenant again to him and you have genesis 10 and 11 and sin just grows upon the earth again and in genesis 12 god comes to a guy named abraham to bless him offers him covenant and relationship and reveals himself to him now abraham at this point is just a pagan guy worshiping pagan gods doesn't know the one true god he's a total knucklehead he's going to stumble a lot in his life because he's 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 trying he's like a lot of us we love jesus we want to follow him and we just stumble and fall sometimes doesn't make the stumble and falling okay but what it does make it is that jesus is our God who has redeemed us and restored us from that. What Abraham does, he starts to follow God, and then the next thing he gets a little scared, goes down to Egypt, kind of pimps out his wife for a little bit. You missed it. Listen to last week. You'll get what that means. And now in chapter 13, he's starting to get some stuff together. Chapter 13 starts up right after chapter 12. Moses now juxtaposes Abraham's unbelief with very strong belief. In chapter 12, he almost gives up all of his lineage and unbelief, and today he almost gives up his land in great belief.
believe. So Genesis 13, verse 1 starts like this. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, guys, this is a ride you've got to imagine. You've done something really stupid, and your wife's just mad. Okay? I mean, you, you lost your kids in the mall. Maybe not our mall, but like a, a big mall, right? And, and it's like five hours later, they like poop their pants. They got candy all over their face. And your wife's just like, what would you do? You're like, I'm so sorry. All the way home. It's like a, maybe you get up here and you do announcements and say your wife's old. And then you got to take that ride home. It's like, baby, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what came out of my mouth. I, I don't know what to do. So what happens now is Abraham goes back up. And, and showing that he goes back up, this is the opposite of what happened when he went to Egypt. In Egypt, he went down to Egypt. Down is bad. Hell, metaphorically, is down. You don't want to go that direction. And so he's going back up to the land God promised him. This is what we call the promised land because it's a promise from God. Now, when we hear the term promised land, a lot of times people just think the land flowing with milk and honey. But it's never referred to that way in Genesis at all. In Genesis, there's not enough rains there, so the famine comes upon that land. This is opposed to Egypt. Egypt, who has the constant flow of the Nile to water all of their crops. In Genesis, the promised land even seems a bit harsh. And this would sit in the consciousness of Israel because when they're getting these, this Genesis account be put together by Moses, they're walking through the desert of Sinai. It is sandy, it is hot, it is dusty. It's not a very pleasant place to be. And this then would help them generate a heightened sense of dependence on God's provision and God's protections and God's workings. And when we think of Egypt, we think, you know, Egypt is bad, Israel is good. Chapter 12 is the first time Egypt is actually listed and mentioned, and it's a place of shelter. It's a place of mortal danger, but it's also a place of shelter. There is no hatred in the scriptures of Israel. Even despite the slavery that the Israelites were in Egypt for, there's no hatred of Egypt in there. The exact opposite is actually true. In Deuteronomy 23.7, we read this, You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. I mean, so often we want to assume the worst. But Egypt throughout ancient times actually helped Israel. There are lots of times when uh, in Egyptian records where Israel wasn't getting a whole lot of land and famine started coming up and Egypt let them bring their, their uh, livestock down and graze in their lands. I think this is why God says in Isaiah 19, 24, and 25, In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of the hosts is blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. See, Egypt's not so bad. But Abraham also should not have gone there. You know, it, it was sin that he went there, but it wasn't the sin that because it was Egypt. It was sin because he didn't listen to what God told him to do and went the exact opposite way. It was a failure to trust God. And many times we're the same way. I mean, we, we want to blame a place or a people or a thing for our sin when our sin's simply our own fault. See, it's not the alcohol's fault. It's yours for drinking too much of it. You know, it's, even today we want to say, oh, look, it's Congress's fault. You know, it's, look at what they're doing. Well, at this point, I don't think it's Congress's fault. I think it's our fault for voting the same people back in every time we keep voting for the same stupid stuff all the time. It's not a political statement. It's just, it's just a true statement. I mean, it's, it's not even the strip club's fault. It's, it's people's fault for keeping it in business. I mean, it's not country music's fault. It's yours for buying the albums. What Abraham does is he repents and he comes back to God, does a lot of soul searching on this trip home like we all need to do. What happened is God reaches Abraham and he leaves Babylon with all of these converts and he worships with them. He then takes them all to Egypt and he sins and he sins and he sins and he sins. And then God rescues Abraham and Abraham sees his own sin and he goes back to where he was supposed to be. He repents. You know, maybe today, if you have lost your way, if you can't 
find God, quote unquote. You've got to figure out what your last good day was with God. And if, it's, if it was a, you're, when you were in a GC and you stopped going, go back. If you like did a Bible study and it totally spoke to your heart and God revealed himself, do it again. If you read a book and it totally spoke, read that book again. It's, it's like the Beatles say, get back to where you once belonged. It's like Sergeant Pepper's theology. But get back to where you once belonged, to God. Abraham does this in front of everyone. It is humbling and he's honest. Like, God, I created a mockery of your name and I am sorry. So, so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. When it says lot with him, he's at the end of this list. And it's a subtle hint that there's a bit of an issue coming around with lot. He's becoming an irritation. You will see this over the next couple chapters. And in this, I mean, this is like Lot ends up becoming an awful lot of trouble in the, in the text. In Genesis, you will see that he is a freeloader. How do we see that? Well, Lot never builds an altar. Lot never worships God. He just sits next to Abraham and he hopes to get blessed. I don't know if you know anybody in your life who's a freeloader. Just nickname him Lot. And just be like, You're, I'll just call you Lot because that, that's, that's what you are. Sometimes you've got to dump those people. It's, Abraham ends up dumping Lot with God's help here pretty quickly. Verse 2. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. It mentions all of his ill-gotten gain from Egypt. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Again, shows his repentance. He's sorry for what he did. I mean, not sorry enough to return all the booty that he got from egypt but he's but he's sorry and because this gain ends up causing him to lose the respect of his wife lose the respect of probably the people that followed him because he hears about this great god i'm gonna make him a great nation everybody we got to follow this god people do and he goes and sins in front of all of them and now abraham literally retraces his steps from one watering hole to the next to get back to where he should have been in the first place abraham here is a great example because he names his sin and he owns his sin and he repents of his sin verse five and lot who went with with Abram, he's still tagging along, also had flocks and herds, though not silver and gold like Abram, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. There's so much stuff that they have that there wasn't enough uh, pasturage or water to support all their livestock. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So sometimes God blesses you, you get a whole lot of stuff, and it just means more work. Anybody ever buy a house? Yes, what happens when you buy a house? What do you do with the house? Work on the house. It's like, my goodness, my job is never... That's right. You, get to, you plant some sod. What do you got to do when you plant sod? Water it, mow it, fertilize it. It's a, Anybody have kids? Yeah, how come every time I say that, people laugh? <laughs> yeah, because if you don't have kids, you get to watch somebody else's kids, stuff them full of candy, send them home, and they're like, here you go. You, know, you send it right back. They go, if you're a parent, you don't get to be their buddy, you have to be their parent. First and foremost, and it's a tough job raising kids. If you ever want to get involved in ministry, you say, you know, I just don't want to sit on the edges anymore. I want to get involved. I want to do something. I want to get involved in gospel community. As soon as you do, you realize it is not actually easy sharing your life with other people. It's actually hard, but we do it because it's a great blessing, but it's also very hard in the midst of it. And, and so what, what you have in this is God's blessing them, and it's bringing about a lot more work. People look at my job. They think, oh, Aaron just gets to play all the time. I don't get to play. I wish I could play all the time, but I've got to deal with you guys all the time. 
At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So on top of Lot and Abraham being in this land, there are also two other peoples there. So there's added factor that they're not the only ones there. In the end, both Abraham and Lot leave this area because it's important if you're a nomad to live in harmony with people around you. And I think Abraham here becomes just an amazing guy in what takes place. I think this has to do much with the humility from being a bonehead in Egypt because he sees his sin and he's very humble. I think he feels guilty. And so he starts to deal with the situation in a very humble way. Like when we get in trouble, we get convicted of sin, we get caught doing something or whatever, we're a lot more pliable, we're a lot more amiable, at least for a little bit, right? Verse, until Jim does announcements next time, makes with his wife again. Verse 8, Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Now, we are not told in the text where Lot got all of his stuff, but I got a pretty good idea. Where do you think Lot got all of his stuff from? Abraham, that's probably exactly where he got all this stuff from. So who should be the one to try and set aside any animosity between Abraham and Lot? Who should do that? Lot, exactly. But no, Lot's not like, okay, you're my uncle, I'm the nephew, you pick the first plot of land first, I'll take the leftover. Sarah's had a hard time because you're a knucklehead, I got it. You know, everything I want to got from you, you go first. He doesn't do that. He's an opportunist, he lives by sight and not by faith. He's only thinking about himself. And so Abraham sees the conflict brewing, and I think he realizes this is coming about because of me and my own sin. I went down and I showed these people how it was not supposed to be done. And so I think he's coming back and stepping into it. And Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. Strife is the word meriba in the text. It means to quarrel. And every time it is used in the scriptures, it is used of people underneath somebody grumbling against their leader. And so this is the deal. Lot is the one that's been grumbling and setting up all of the conflict between both of these peoples. And it shows the base reason for the quarrels, but it also underscores the base ingratitude of Lot. He is grumbling. So Abram says, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right hand, then I will go left. He's like, let's get along. I think he's learned great faith because God made some promises to Abraham. And he lets Lot choose first, I think, first, because if he doesn't, Lot's going to get all bent out of shape like the snot-nosed brat that he is. But I think he also realizes God is sovereign, he's in control, he's going to take care of everything. I mean, imagine you, you're, you just paid off your house, and your neighbor comes over to your door, and ding-dong, you open the door, and your neighbor says, hey, the boundary markers are wrong, you know, your house is mine, thanks for paying the mortgage, I totally appreciate that. Now, w- would you say, oh, I don't want trouble, I trust the Lord? No. You would say, hold on a second, got to get my shovel. And you'd walk out and you'd smack him in the head and you'd bury him in your backyard. Be like, I don't know what happened to my neighbor. He just disappeared one day. That's what we would do. Right? Abraham at this point, he's growing. He has faith. This is a total difference between the guy that went down to Egypt and the guy that comes back out of Egypt. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So he's like, ooh, it's pretty. Oh, it's so nice. That's what he does. And then there's this little tag. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Dun, dun, dun. It's just great. It's just great. This is it. We know in just a few chapters, Flaming Heart Road Tar comes out of heaven on top of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, good choice, Lot. Good thing he didn't pray about it. It's why we need to pray. He thought he was getting eaten, and he got brimstone from heaven. It's not a good choice. All right, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeying east, symbolic moving further away from God. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, the eventual promised land, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Again, this is the idea. Lot doesn't pray, he just went. You've got to be careful where you go. We've got a lot of young people that come to Element, and sometimes you're looking at a college to go to. You know, a college may look great on the outside, but you need to go 
go check it out because it could destroy you when you're there. I mean, some of you guys, you're, you're looking for new relationships, want a new guy, a new girl. Well, you know what? They may look great on the outside, but you've got to spend some time to figure out if they're going to destroy your life by you connecting with them. Maybe it's a new job, a new city. You may be going and hanging out in an ungodly place with ungodly people. It's going to destroy your life. A lot of times we look out and we see things, oh, it looks so great, oh, it looks so good, I'm going to go there, and then it comes back to hurt us. I mean, you need to find godly people you can do life with, because this place destroys a lot. And so if you ever move, you've got to factor in a place to worship God. If you're married, you must always factor in your family and what's going to be best for them in these decisions. I mean, Lot's family goes bad in this place as well. His wife dies, his daughters become perverts. And it's going to be very difficult when we walk through that text and I explain it to you and be like, this is uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable what happens to his daughters. And I'm not against moving, but I will tell you, where you go, worship of God must be priority one. Jesus is first and foremost in our lives, and that's priority one. This is now how Abraham makes his decision. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him. So God gets rid of Lot. I think, you can, I think God's like, you can thank me now. Thank me. Thank God that we got rid of that guy. And now the last link to Abraham's family is severed. And so he starts this new life. And so God says, lift up your eyes. These are the same words that he used when Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the land around Sodom. God now commands Abraham, you lift up your eyes and you see what I want you to see. So lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, in the Hebrew text, this is written like a legal formula for land conveyance. He will then tell Abraham to walk through this land as a, as a thing that shows this is the land I'm giving you. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as a dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. This is an extraordinary promise because how's God going to do this? Abraham's got this barren wife who can't have kids anymore, and God's making this promise. Wait and see how it all works out. It's kind of crazy how we get there. But the cool thing in this is you are actually part of this promise. You and I are. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Galatians, it also tells you that singular, the offspring that was to come, was Jesus. But it also says that Christians are Jews and Gentiles. Abraham starts as a guy. He's a non-Jew. And God reveals himself to him. God loves him. And Abraham loves God. We, you and I, are grafted into the family of God just like Abraham. Abraham believes God's promises. And the promise was Jesus is coming. And so by faith, we believe that promise. By faith, we believe that he came. By faith, we believe the promises of God just like Abraham did. And by faith, we walk with God as Abraham walked with God into the promises he has made to you for you and I and by faith we believe in Jesus who was the God of Abraham verse 17 so God says arise walk the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you and so this is like walk through and claim this so Abraham moved from his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre Mamre is the name of a person who these oaks are named after we'll see this next week in Genesis 14 which are at Hebron now Hebron is a strategic place in the Judean heartland uh, today it's actually occupied by Arabs and they call it Ahalel which is all short for Ahalel Ur Rahman which means friend of the merciful one which is actually a, a reference back to Abraham and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the third altar Abraham builds. And so Abraham consecrates, he commissions all that he has, all of his dreams to follow God. He builds an altar, he has church. So he has an altar now in the northern and southern parts of his land. So anybody who comes into the area where he is will know that Abraham worships and follows the one true God. And I think what you see in Abraham's life now at this point after chapter 13 is he is becoming two things. And the first one is pastoral. I think he sees God as his great shepherd who has taken care of him and brought him where he's supposed to be, and he understands this. 
for you and I. I think one of the most fascinating ways Jesus used the scriptures was to point towards his own self as the one who fulfilled them. I think some of the most powerful claims that he made to be the Messiah were delivered in one of the most popular images of the day, and that is of the good shepherd. The word pastor means shepherd. God is shepherding Abraham. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, it says this, He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. For us, this means Jesus is our great shepherd. I mean, when people say, who's the head pastor at Element? You know what we say? Jesus. Jesus is, that he is the chief shepherd. First Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He is the head of element. We have elders here. They are under shepherds of Jesus. We try and do what he calls us to do, but he is the head pastor at this church. John 10, 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, after John chapter 9, he heals this man. And this man then gets ridiculed by the religious elite. They kick him out of the church, and so Jesus goes and defends this guy as his shepherd. And Jesus starts to speak about how his sheep hear his voice. That is what Abraham is learning, how to hear the voice of God. I think you get to Psalm 23, which is written by King David. I think Abraham would totally relate to this psalm. I think Abraham could have probably written this psalm. And when he says, this is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's now a shepherd himself, and he's understanding this. He understands that with God as his shepherd, things are absolutely fine. There is no reason to fret whatsoever. He says, he makes me lie in green pastures. You know what shepherd, separates a shepherd from a rancher? A shepherd's nomadic. They're always taking their sheep to the right pasturage where they need to be. This is what God has been doing for Abraham and his people, taking them where they need to be to actually live and thrive. He says, he leaves me beside quiet waters. I've told you this before, that sheep are stupid. All right? Actually, they're told that ripples in a body of water can hypnotize sheep, and, uh, and they can drown in the little body of water. This is Lot. Lot looks up. He sees where Sodom is. like, oh, he gets the ripples, and he gets affected. Boom, he goes down. I mean, Abraham on their side, God says, you lift up your, up your eyes. And God calms the waters and says, this is where I want you to go. And he follows God. He says, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, the shepherd saves the sheep, not just from predators, but even from themselves. He restores wayward sheep like Abraham is down in Egypt and God brings him back. And when we speak about Jesus being the good shepherd, he's evoking more than just comforting images. This is, this is images of power because a shepherd is used to describe a king. Even in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, God expresses his, angers at, his anger at the leaders of his people by describing them as bad shepherds. Then he promises to save his flock and send a good shepherd. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am that good shepherd. And today we take his words for granted. But Jesus says, I'm your king. I am your shepherd. You don't worry about what happens. I will carry you if you need it. This is what Abraham is now beginning to understand. It's a slow process for him, and he fails an awful lot getting there. But he knows God is his shepherd. He sees the people who are around him and with him, and he understands he's supposed to be an under-shepherd to them as well. And so he takes care of them. He takes them to the good pastures. He builds altars. And what he does is he teaches them who God is and how to worship God. Now, if you're a, a husband... You know, in, in your family, who is the main pastor to your family after Jesus? You are. You are. And this is what Abraham, again, is learning. And your leadership may end up looking a lot like his, full of crazy mistakes. But in humbleness, he repents and he continues to move forward with a faith that is imperfect but is made righteous by God. 
first thing, he's pastoral. Second thing he's becoming is a servant, is a servant. Abraham starts to serve those around him, even his crazy nephew Lot, because I think he starts to understand that God is a servant to him as well. God sought him out by giving him the land and bringing him back from his mistake. If you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. You may have heard me say this before about a year and a half ago, but I'm going to reiterate it because it's always good to remember and know. I'll show you a couple things about servanthood from what Jesus said. Uh, This is Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 7. Sorry if you had your hand around your wife and you got to pick it over and now turn your Bible pages. (laughs) I saw someone go, we're good. All right. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now, most people feel this is a strange little story told by Jesus who we consider to be Mr. Servanthood. It's like, why wouldn't the master fix dinner for the servants? Well, this isn't a little parable about labor relations. Jesus is addressing our tendency to be over-impressed with how hard that we're trying. Oh, look at me, God. I'm a servant. I'm serving so much. Look at me serving. I was in the field all day long working for God. God owes me. No, God doesn't owe you. See, when we learn to walk in grace to understand God better, we learn to live the call of servanthood correctly. We take servanthood and we twist it all the time. Pride is a killer to servanthood, and we get so prideful about how we're serving. In another parable, Jesus talks about a Pharisee who thinks God is not like this terrible little tax collector. Many Christians will even hear that story, and we will think, well, that Pharisee thought he had to earn his way into God's favor. I'm smarter than he was. My theology is right. Thank God I'm better than that guy who thought he was better than everybody else. We do this all the time, all the time. When we come down to understand that everything we do is meant to be service, whether it's in your home or at your work, whatever you do, Martin Luther once said this, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. Everything you do is meant to be service. And I told you this story before. I had a friend who used to work at Disneyland. Now, he said when he was trained at Disneyland, you know, there's, there's one value that was emphasized above all others. When you, what puts the magic in the magic kingdom is supposed to be servanthood. And so they're told that when you're in the kingdom, when you walk through those gates, you serve people. Whatever your job is, you're a servant. You treat everyone with great respect like they're your personal guest. If they need directions, you escort them. If they, someone asks you a question you've heard a hundred times, you answer it like it's the first time you, you ever heard it. If you ever go there and they're not all nice and polite, go point it out to somebody because I'm sure they'll be gone the next day. Now, I told you this story, but there's a ride there called the Jungle Cruise. Anybody been on the Jungle Cruise? Yeah. Terrible, boring ride. Ter- slow, long. It's like... Lion. <laughs> Hippo. It better that you drive the boat like, you know, like, no, but not. Okay, so Jungle Cruise. The most common question asked at Disneyland on the Jungle Cruise is, how long is this ride? This is the answer they're all supposed to give. The Jungle Cruise is an excited adventure ride that lasts 10 minutes. I'm supposed to say that every time. So apparently, one employee is there. He must have heard this question a million times, had him a bad day. I don't know what it is. This couple comes up and they say, how long is this ride? And he goes, three days. So what they do is they get out of line, they left the park, they go back to the Disneyland Hotel where they were staying on their honeymoon, pack their bags, come back out of the hotel, go back in line and wait at the Jungle Cruise. What do things happen in the next day? That guy's gone, right? And there's somebody else standing in line when someone says, how long is this? He says, the Jungle Cruise is an exciting adventure ride that lasts 10 minutes because I don't want to get fired. <laughs> that's, that's what he does. See, what we have to understand is that true servanthood comes out of knowing God's call in our life. 
That's what it comes out of, and being humble about it. Not being like, well, God loves me, and I'm a servant, and I'm going to serve. Look how good I'm serving. That's not what we do. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's all, what puts the magic in that kingdom? is serving. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom about status and climbing ladders and getting attention. I think Abraham understands this because he goes to a snot-nosed, crowing nephew, Lot, and he says, if you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right hand, then I will go left. Become the person God intends for you and I to be means we must serve because God's kingdom is one of those kingdoms where if you don't want to serve, you don't really want to be there. You may say you want to be there, but you don't really want to be there. I think God will look at his faithful servants and God says, well done. I think he says the faithful who faithful employees who give themselves diligently to their work and who never get human recognition. I think he says it to workers who know they can climb higher if they cut corners and manipulate others, and they don't. I think he says it to parents who care for and look after their kids, feeding them, bathing them, cleaning up after them, and when they're tired and nobody notices, I think God notices those things because God is a servant. See, in Abraham, he's one guy following the one true God in this area, and though his faith is completely imperfect, he is starting to get it of what it's supposed to mean. The question is, you know, do we get it? I mean, we've had a lot more time to know who the one true God is than Abraham ever has. And yet the question is, do we actually get it? Are we being pastoral? Are we being servants in our relationships? Do we see humbleness as this virtue it's supposed to be? Because what Abraham does is he builds an altar on both sides of the land that he has promised. So whoever comes in would know that he serves the one true God who made all things. I mean, an altar there is like a testimony. It's like a testimony. You know, what, what is your testimony that you follow God? What is your life actually look Don't go home and build an altar, okay? What you do is your life is to be that testimony. And so you've got to figure out, are you like Lot? He views everyone around you as someone who owes you something? Are you always looking for someone to take care of you, always thinking it's somebody else's fault? You can always blame your problems on somebody else. Do you live in ingratitude? Or are you thankful for all that you have been given, like Abraham starts to understand, the big things and the small things, and then you search for ways to give to others as well in servanthood? Because this is the understanding of the gospel, that our God is pastor and servant, and so many other things. But these are the main way he reveals himself to his people, in his pastorship and his servanthood. See, I will tell you, I don't care who you are, you will have somebody in your life that is under you at some point. And how do you shepherd them? Well, how do you show who God is in your life? How do you serve them? Because this is the importance of the gospel. It changes how we live and what we do. This, this is why we do, we do communion every week, but we do it in the way that we do after a message as a response. Because Jesus comes and brings Abraham back from his Egypt of sin, just like he does for you and I. He takes you and I back from our Egypt of sin so we can actually walk with him into the promises that he's called us to. We need to actually live and walk in those promises he's called us to. This is why every week we have you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us so we remember what it cost him to do this. We dip it in the wine of the grape juice to remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I so that we can actually be this people who end up becoming shepherds and servants to people around us so we can properly reflect our great God who has done all of this for us. Uh, the band is going to come up. And as they do, you know, we're going to invite you guys to take communion. Uh, we're going to invite you for prayer. There will be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for this, if you're like, man, I never understood God as my shepherd. Well, you know what? Go and pray with them. I mean, maybe you're in a place in your life where you don't, haven't understood servanthood comes from our God for showing that to us. Pray with them. They'd love to work with you with some things in your life. 
Um, there, there's some offering boxes on the side and wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. And there, there was some donuts in the back. Still donuts in the back? No donuts? But there's stuff? Okay. Apparently, the band hasn't eaten them all. <laughs> or Paul Schaefer. First service, there's some donuts back there, and Paul's just like eating donuts, and I'm like, are those good for your heart? And he goes, yep. <laughs> all right. Grab something to eat. Uh, get to know some other people. Because, again, in this whole idea of what we're doing, of, of understanding following God as our great shepherd, is that we do this together. We, we, it's like we all like sheep, all of us. Bah, okay, we're all sheep. And so we should follow our shepherd together. We do this together so we can hold each other up and we start to do stupid things. It's like, hey, let's not do this. Let's do the thing that honors our great shepherd. And we can do this together. So we encourage all, all of you guys that you should be involved in gospel community. If, at 1 o'clock, if you don't know what that even means, come and hang out with them. Uh, there's also a sign-up sheet in the back. We'll plug you in somewhere. We'd love to connect all of you in gospel community as best that we can because we believe that this is the way that we also honor God by understanding him as our great shepherd, as a servant. I mean, guys, I, I, don't, I don't think we'll ever truly understand the depth of God's servanthood or his pastorship, you know, and, until the one day when we see him face to face and we're like, oh, I get it. Changes our minds where we only use 10% of our brains. We actually get to use 100% and be like, oh, I get it now. I mean, God is so good to his people. And most of the time we just don't even get it. And he is. So how about we start living? a life that actually kind of reflects more of who he is. A great God who has saved and redeemed his people, sought us out, brought us back from our Egypt of sin to a place of redemption and hope that our God brought us home. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as your people would understand what it means to walk in pastorship and servanthood. First and foremost, understanding you as our great shepherd. That you are pastoring your people, that you are calling us to where we are supposed to be in our lives, and that you take us back from all the crazy places of Egypt of our own sin. And Father, I also ask that we would understand servanthood and what it means to serve those around us in a way that honors more fully who you are, that gives the people around us the dignity and honor that you give them by being made simply in your image. And that people understand better who you are by how we as your flock live. Father, thank you for breaking the chains that held us down to all of our sin and setting us free and bringing us into your fold. It is amazing grace. And it is something that we will probably never fully comprehend. But we thank you that even though we are like dumb sheep, you still love us anyway. And you still redeemed us anyway. And so, this morning, accept our worship as praise and honor to you. And as we walk out these doors, continue to convict us that we, so that we will live lives of service outside of these walls. And that people are more, more fully better understand who you are by the way we, as your children, live our lives. In honor of you. Amen.